Welcome to our podcast, All About the Car, brought to you by Sherrill Tire and Service. I'm your host, Rob Hoffman, an auto service specialist with over 46 years of industry experience. On the ride with me today, our regular guest, Brian Call, a 42-year veteran of the automotive industry. Hello, Brian. Hey, Rob. Great to be on the ride. And Bill Sherrill, a guy that's logged a lot of Wisconsin miles and always comes to the table with a lot of great questions. Welcome back, Bill. Thanks, Rob. Glad to be here. Today, we have a very special guest on the drive, our very own fire chief of the Wausau, Wisconsin Fire department bob bartek we are on location at the wausau fire station number one so thank you so much for hosting our podcast today bob it's a pleasure to have you here it's great to be here today we're going to find out more about what it takes to keep the fire trucks and the emergency gear in tip-top shape to be ready at a moment's notice and what it's like to lead such a successful emergency operation but first let's take a moment to set the stage by going back in time It wasn't until 1869 that the growing lumber and sawmill town of Wausau had organized the volunteer fire company, number one. It was one thing to purchase the first fire engine and hand pump, but the city also had to secure its first fire engine house, which they did for a whopping $980. Prior to 1869, there were no organized firefighting groups or equipment, so if a structure did catch fire, it was usually doomed. But it takes a dedicated group of people to pull it all together, and the Wausau Fire Department Company Number 1 was formed. Well, that was then, and as they say, this is now. We are sitting amongst the latest technology in firefighting and emergency gear, but we also see some early examples of fire engines. And Bob, you just gave us a great tour, which we got to walk around these engines. Tell us a little bit more about those. Well, as you described, it's today's modern fire technology and what we use in our apparatus is really purpose-built. And it goes through the different generations. And while you guys were out there, we looked at this beautiful 1904 knot horse-drawn steamer, you know, a steam-driven engine. That was the technology then. And then right next to it is that really nice example of internal combustion-driven engines that we had here, pumpers, open cab, built in Kenosha by the Peter Persh family. And I think those are really good examples of where we were and where we are today in these modern apparatus, obviously hugely expensive, but custom-built in every detail. And as you walk around those trucks and look at what's in the cabinets, they're like rolling toolboxes, but then there's also a fair amount of technology that's built into and purposefully need to meet the needs of this community as we go out and respond to it on an everyday basis. So is that something that's typical when you're saying customization, that one community may have a lot more calls or need for particular pieces of equipment where another community just doesn't? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that regionally especially. If you were to look around, maybe central Wisconsin, our apparatus is probably going to be fairly the same. But if you were to go down to Arizona or maybe the southwest part of the country and look at that, it's going to be very different, right? Uh, they're running twin air conditioners on stuff. We're running twin heaters. We've got heaters behind our pump panels and things like that. Here in Wausau, we have a lot of high-rises uh, compared to, say, our rural partners that are around us in the county and things like that. And so we'll have different hose lays, which we need then to different trays. Also, it's our organization is, while we're Wausau Fire Department, 90% of our call volume is EMS calls. And so our engines are all set up with advanced life support equipment on all of our engines and all of our firefighters are also paramedics. And so what you see is those engines run on a lot of EMS calls to assist because it brings extra hands out to the scene to help. And then they're also available for another fire call or another call that happens to subsequently while they're out doing that assist on the EMS call. That really makes a lot of sense to me since oftentimes you see fire trucks going down the road and you go, whoa, what's burning? But it probably is not a fire. Yeah, probably one of the number one questions I get, I feel as the fire chief is, why do I see a fire truck going on an ambulance call? 
Well, it's not that we need that truck on that call, but maybe we need some of the equipment that's on that truck. What we need is the people that are are assigned to that truck for that day. And one of the best examples I can give is one day we were out this, and this is when I was at Wisconsin Rapids Fire, and I was fielding this question actually to a citizen as we were wrapping up PMS call. Hey, why don't you just come out with a pickup truck? to help out the CMS crew on this call. And I said, well, we have to be prepared for the next sequential call that could come in. And most likely it's going to be a fire or another EMS call. Oh, sure. And just as I was saying that, we got paged to another fire call. And I look south and there's the column of smoke that this oh, citizen wow. could see with me. And all right, now we're, we're changing our hats. We're moving from our paramedic role to our firefighting role, which we all have to be prepared for. And that's really where seconds come. So the time you would have had to add to that response by coming back to the station, grabbing the truck. Oh, my gosh, yeah. And another piece of apparatus. We'd have to have some type of a quick action vehicle or something like that. And, yeah, we just can't do that. We have to be prepared for all different calls. And just works out really well in the configuration that we respond to right now. Yeah, we've definitely come a long way from that 1904 steam pumper <laughs> yeah. out there yeah. to, yes. to what's going on today. And what we saw is just awesome. Bob, let's talk a little bit more about you to start off with. How long have you been doing this gig? Sure. Well, I grew up in Owen Withy, so Owen specifically, Twin Cities in the Northwoods, uh, right between Wausau and Eau Claire. <laughs> My dad joined the volunteer fire department there in 1976, and we lived this kind of kitty corner out our back door of our house. And when I was a kid, my dad and all my friends' dads were all volunteer firefighters there on one with me. And so I grew up around that firehouse and just had a great appreciation for what they did in the community and whatnot. After high school, I came to North Central Technical College here. I was studying an emerging thing, laser technology, in case you didn't know lasers are going to be the wave of the future. Ah. <laughs> they were coming into medicine. They needed to text and stuff to, to take care of that stuff. And I just wasn't satisfied with it. I was doing okay with it, but I would drive past this station on an everyday basis. And one day I thought, you know what, I'm going to stop in at that Wausau fire station and inquire, what do I got to do to get a job there? And I did that. And it was over lunch hour and uh, one of the Wausau firefighters, I wish I knew who it was. I really do. So this would have been circa 1990. I stop in here and, hey, what do I got to do to have a trade doing the work in this trade? And he says, well, you really need to go get an associate degree. You really need to have your EMT basic, these things. I'm like, okay, where do I go to get this degree? And he's like, Madison or Fox Valley. And I said, well, which one of those is better? He says, I think Appleton's probably the one that's a little bit better than the Madison. So I literally went back to tech school. I met my counselor. I dropped out of the laser technology program, got enrolled into the fire technology program that afternoon. Like we're on the phone. There was no stopping you. You were all in. Nothing. nothing. (laughs) And I literally, I'm driving home that afternoon and I dropped out of college. Of course, I had some paperwork and other things to do with at Fox Valley to get in there, but we'd spoken to the counselor there. They had been doing all the transfer stuff for me. And I'm like, oh, I should probably have a job. And I stopped at a guy from our church that had a milk route, bulk milk route, was always looking for help. And I said, hey, Tim, are you still looking for a driver? And he says, yeah, I am. He says, well, when can you start? And I'm like, I dropped out of school today. I could start anytime tomorrow or beyond. He says, be in the driveway at 3.30 in the morning tomorrow. And so I went home real proud and I told mom and dad, I said, guess what? I dropped out of college today. I'm going to become a full-time <laughs> firefighter and I'm going to start driving bulk milk truck tomorrow to help pave the way. My mom, God rest her soul, denies the mushroom cloud that went up that day. <laughs> <laughs> so that began, you know, the real interest. And then, and then I got into Fox Valley Technical College, spent a year interning on Oshkosh Fire Department, fall of 93, got picked up by the Wisconsin Rapids Fire Department. And that's when there was hundreds of people testing for singular positions that I felt very blessed to get hired there and did uh, 25 wonderful years there, started as a firefighter, EMT basic, became a paramedic, climbed, I held every rank inside that department below. I was the deputy chief there when I got recruited to come here in Wausau in 2019. And and so it's, uh, it's interesting 
literally we're sitting just a couple of feet away from where I had that conversation in 1990 about joining the fire service. Wow. That's cool. Isn't it? And so yeah. it's cyclical to me, like, all right, this was a return at home for me and the source where I started my thoughts in this career path. Well, that's awesome. And we're, like you said, we're sitting right here in fire company number one, which is, as I said earlier, 1869, that's where it started. Not necessarily here on this lot. But blocks from here. But fire number one. So, yep. Yep. yeah. As you were given that, that was a wonderful history that you gave here. I always remind people, in 1863, a major fire occurred here that there was almost a loss of life. Uh, the Hotel America on the banks of Big Bull Falls down here burned. And the stories coming out of there was the people that were inside that hotel got out with just whatever they had on. All their belongings barely got out with their lives out of that fire. And that sat in their minds. And then when the two paper mills had fires, in 1868 and then in 1869. It's time to get serious. We need to think about what we're going to do for fire suppression in this community. Yeah, I guess that's one thing in my research. I never really gave it a second thought that the industry here was sawmills and lumber. And that makes sense with the river and all that. So yeah, very interesting. Yeah, it is. I love that history stuff because we have to understand where we came from, you know, remissions and values driven organization. And I think that when I look at these old photos of firefighters that came long before I came, the mission was really still the same. It was to serve this community's needs when they needed it. And really today, we're a EMS, largely EMS. And we've got a state contract hazmat response team. We're skilled in firefighting and all these rescue techniques from water rescue to machinery and vehicle entrapment type things. And just basically, when there's a need in this community that can't be met by anyone else, we have to be expected to fill that gap. And so that's what we've really become over all those years, more and more relied upon by our community for their darkest hours, really. Now, how many firehouses do you have here in Wausau? So we have three fire stations here. We've got, you're sitting in the main one downtown here. I call it Central or the headquarters station right at Grand and Thomas kind of right in the center of the community. Out on the west side, we've got a newer replacement station out there, Station 2. It's right on the 52 Parkway. Wausau has made some really big developments to the west, all the way out to Highway O. When they moved, they helped uh, Great Lakes Cheese and Wausau Chemical move. They moved them way out there. And so we've got a very far reach to our western regions. From the central station for us to reach that far western portion of us would be 17-minute response. Mm. And so that station over there on the west side is key. They're the first in for anything on that western approach. And, of course, they're right near the medical uh, community that's out there from Aspirus and, you know, the surgical associates and others that are out there. That dominates a lot of their call volume there is, is that medical community. Then Station 3 is tucked in up on Bridge Street, which Bridge Street is well-known in Wausau, but it's way over on the 800 block of Bridge Street, and it's kind of tucked into a neighborhood. That was the thing. That station was built in 1981. 70s and 80s, they were like trying to hide fire stations into neighborhoods, like strategically place them and then make it look like a house. It doesn't look like a house at all. And I'm sure the neighbors <laughs> do not like the fact that we leave emergently a lot. The guys are really good, especially at night. They don't flip on the siren until they absolutely have yeah, to when they're the trapped or clear or whatever. But yeah, so we're three stations. We're building staffing right now. We added a dozen new positions. Between the three stations right now, we're 15-person minimum. By the end of this process where we're on board these 12, 12 new firefighters, we're going to be 18. So it'll be three 22-person, 24-hour crews with 18 minimum. So we have obviously sick leave, vacation, things like that. We've got people and then we've got eight working in administration, which I'm on a 40-hour work week as several others are, our inspectors and our deputy chief and whatnot. So, so that's what the department makeup is like. Okay. With the three stations, how many actual fire trucks do you have in the system? Oh, I should have had that number on the top of my head. So we've got reserve engines too. So we've got what we call three frontline suppression apparatus. It's really four once we count our second ladder truck. So out of station one, 
We have an engine one, which is a standard pumper. We also have a match to that, a twin. We ordered them together, twin Sutfin engines. Station three will have a pumper. And then station two, we've got what we call, sometimes it's referred to as a quint. It is a 75-foot straight stick ladder. It's a very small framed ladder truck. And that's more of our light commercial residential ladder truck. And then also downtown, as you guys saw, we've got our big 100-foot aerial ladder platform. And that truck will go to any large commercial high-rise type facility and things like that. And then we've got a reserve engine that we also have. And so those are our suppression apparatus. But then also we've got five ambulances. We've got utility truck. We've got our airboat. We've got... I picture a big list on the wall somewhere. How are you keeping track of all this? Our fleet management (laughs) is really something that... That's our deputy chief leads fleet management. So when I was deputy chief, that was one of the things that I had to do. It was my job. And now it's the most difficult job in here because there is daily breakdowns and everything. You imagine this is a million moving parts to every piece of apparatus that we have here. So this morning, actually, that was one of the things I was getting caught up on my deputy chief is we've got our backup ladder that just failed pump test. We've got an annually pump test to make sure the pump that just failed. So we've got to send that out to another vendor that's out of town that's going to go through that and see if they can't repair that pump. We've got another piece of apparatus that needs to go in for a PM. But guess what? That's difficult without our reserve piece of apparatus to send that in for a PM because it's going to be out of service for a day or two just getting as a PM. Air conditioning on ambulances was really a problem this last summer, and it wasn't extraordinarily hot, but actually we're state-mandated, according to DSPS laws, that we have to have an operating air conditioner in the patient compartment in order to operate that as an emergency ambulance. And so when that breaks down, it may be a temperate day where it's not terrible. We can't even have that apparatus in service. And so it becomes real problematic. All of our fleet, all of our apparatus is actually under the control of the city fleet manager and their system. And so we actually pay the fire department. It's just, you know, it's all internal funds in the general fund, but the fire department pays the Department of Public Works fleet management to manage our fleet. And they co-own the stuff with us and they manage it all for us. And they do a remarkable job. I have a question about the equipment in the city and the relationship. So what happens if a building gets built Lot taller than you can reach. You had oh, said that you know, you're 100 foot Because I remember one comment in Stephen's point one time being made like, there's only buildings so tall because that's as tall as the ladder could go. Oh, really? <laughs> Whether that's true or not, I have no yeah. idea. But it prompts my question of like, what is that relationship if a developer says in two years there's going to be, we'll say, a 25 foot building? Yeah. We don't have an expectation. Yeah, we don't have an expectation to reach every floor with a ladder truck. Any new building like that has to go through our prevention division and our fire marshal oversees all those building plans. And there are state and federal laws about, or I should say, codes that are put on those buildings. And one of them is fire suppression systems and standpipe systems. And so high-rise operations is where we go there, where we actually pump into a high-rise system. So imagine. A stairwell that you've been in a hotel that's maybe, and you see those that piping along the way, mm-hmm. fire department connections and stuff like that. So what we have is well, firefighters arrive, the pumper will connect to that system, and they're pumping into it. Now, our firefighters carry hoses on their backs and on their shoulders. They go up that then tie into that. They'll usually tie in the four below the fire, tie into that system, open that valve. The water's being pumped by our pumper to that building that then they're moving into fire operations for. I will tell you that if you want to be rescued by a ladder truck in a high rise, never stay beyond the seventh floor because that's where we're as high as we can go in the optimal conditions, right? 
as the seventh floor. That's always a joke with firefighters is, oh, you're on the eighth floor, you're doomed. (laughs) (laughs) But we do not restrict building based upon reach of ladders and things like that. Yeah. You just have to go buy another million dollar truck. Well, (laughs) and you'll see, actually, it's really interesting, you know, internationally, Tokyo being so tall and some of the Chinese and Japanese configurations, they're coming up with some sky booms that'll go 120 to 150 feet. And I'll tell you that there's a lot of movement in those apparatus. And it's really difficult to support on the floor of that. Imagine how big the outriggers need to be and things like that. And really, what's the purpose at that point? Because that probably that can't support water flow and operations like that. What's really interesting is to see some of this drone technology that's coming out. I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, there's some drone technology that's coming out that carry water up and, you know, into a high rise. I haven't seen anything that obviously we're entertaining here. But these larger cities probably are looking at some of that technology, how it can do that. But we treat those high rises. We're fighting from the inside. We're finding safe areas. This is why all these fire codes exist. Why you see all the doors closed always on the stairwells is that's to provide safe egress for residents, ingress for firefighters to do our operations. And even inside that, people close their doors behind them with the codes that are applied to fire breaks in modern construction. We just had actually this new banter building over here with the rooftop restaurant on it that went on there, Velvet Velvet Plum. Plum. Very beautiful. I highly recommend it. Wonderful place. They had a fire in one of those apartments just shortly after opening, and the fire control system kicked in. The sprinklers kept it confined to that unit. Our firefighters went in and mopped it up. Everything worked just as it should, and they uh, just a blip in their operations wow. daily like that. Nice. Yep. So you mentioned earlier on the uniqueness of these fire engines and the types of repairs. Some of these things you have to send out for have somebody else do it, a vendor. Some of the PMs and things like that you mentioned, is that done right here within your organization? Do you have somebody that's in charge of that or responsible to do that? Yeah, we actually do. So our fleet department, they actually have techs there that have gone through the emergency vehicle tech training and they're certified EVTs. And that's not an easy thing to earn. And they typically there's a school over it's a couple times a year that they go over to Michigan to get certified in that. And there's an escalating, I was imagine many of your certifications as techs that you see that EVT is one that they can escalate in. And there's one for pumping apparatus and then ladders and things like that, that they get certified in. And so it's not just over the road type stuff. They're looking at the pump, the operations of the water flowing pump of the ladder truck and the hydraulic system and other things, all the operations and systems on that truck from the emergency lighting. We've really tried to whittle down the technology on our newer trucks. We went to a simplex system for operation of everything on there, but yet they're still saturated with it. You know, we've got MTTs, these mobile data terminals that guys can communicate with and cradle points to communicate with the web through that. All of our apparatus are uh, equipped with an Opticon system. So, and that's ours is a GPS based. And what that does is, is one of our pieces of apparatus when they're in emergency mode, meaning they flipped on the emergency lights and they're operating in that manner. As they approach an intersection, that Opticom sends a signal to that light. It understands the orientation that that apparatus is approaching from, and they get green arrow, green light as their approach. And so, like, if they were coming out of this station right now. eye that's up on top of the, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You'll see that. It's some of those eyes, and some of them you won't, but the technology is there. And so, we have that. We get priority in traffic is what we call it over that stuff. So the EVT has got to be understand every Everything. working part of that. That's absolutely amazing. So when they go in for PM, it's not just, hey, let's just check the brake pads for wear. Let's check all these other things. They're looking for metal on the, they're pulling the anodes on the pump. They're looking for metal shavings on the magnets inside the pump. They're looking for emergency lights and everything working. It's so saturated with technology. 
And with our newest apparatus, the Sutfin company is really good at not having proprietary parts on there. If you look at the kick plates on those engines, when we were purchasing this newest engines, we took the head EVT, the head mechanic, and I led that committee, and we went out and toured these manufacturing facilities. And we went to Dublin, Ohio, and toured the Sutfin factory. We're walking around in there, and it had a whole different environment how they were building that. And we approached a guy that was assembling. So these have a common L9 EVS 3000 transmission on it. And, of course, those get assembled on the floor before they're installed. They build everything from the frame rails. Everything is custom built by these manufacturers. And that technician that was putting that engine together, our head tech and him started a conversation. First off, I was looking at, like, this guy's workspace. is like a dental office. He's got everything laid out. Wow. It's really nice. And then he's saying, hey, you know what? Look at this. Here, I'll give you an example. He said, I used to work on these things, and I'd swear at the guys who would put them together. And he says, no, I'm the guy putting it together. (laughs) So now look at this. Now here, I'm putting a hose clamp on here. Now, once this engine goes in between the frame rails. Can I get to the hose clamp? The next tech is only going to be able to get at it from here. And so then I looked, and he had every hose clamp, every zip tie, everything arranged for the next technician that followed him. Oh, you got to love him. To, yeah, exactly, right? And I thought, the green light's going on, like, these people really got it together. Yeah, that never happens in our major auto manufacturers. <laughs> no. <laughs> engineers do not no. think that way. <laughs> and this is a small family manufacturer that's manufacturing Amazing. these. They're doing about less than 300 fire apparatus here. And if you go look at the kick plate on those, and I'll have to show you guys that, in front of the driver's compartment, that's set up for the technician, not the person, not the firefighter apparatus driving it. They've got all the common part numbers for the air filters. How much fluid does it take? What fluid does it take? All that stuff so they don't have to go to run to the computer to look on the DVD that was supplied with that engine as far as the parts. There's the part number, whoever the manufacturer is. And you can go down to Truck Country or Napa and get this stuff from wherever. And I think when we look at apparatus is from an administrative standpoint, I'm looking at out-of-service time with apparatus. I need apparatus that is reliable and has very low out of service time. And that's the toughest thing to nail manufacturers As on. As the consumer of your services, most certainly I want to have all the apparatuses available. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's a cost thing, right? Because when we don't have that in service, we're having to do something else to make sure that we've got a reserve that's still in operating. Or we got to lean on our community partners next to us to make our own responses in our community. So what type of time frame, how many years is a fire truck in service? Good question. It is a good question. So NFPA has dictated a lot of this. But now NFPA isn't law in Wisconsin. The National Fire Protection Agency. So if you look at the NFPA, National Fire Protection Agency, they oversee everything that we do from the design and construction of our turnout gear and helmets to our SCBAs, but also our fire trucks. And they have to comply with that. So the emergency lighting, we make sure it's NFPA complying, the the sirens, everything the firefighter restraint systems, but they have dictated that a pumping apparatus has a life expectancy of 10 years and a ladder is 15 years. I will tell you that we expect far more out of that. That's one thing that you're going to see not a lot of compliance in. We hope to get 15 years out of a $600,000 pumper. We hope to get 20 to 25 years. These new ladder trucks, to replace that ladder truck that you see out there is going to be near $2 million. We can't replace that as a municipality over 15 years especially when it's got plenty of service time left in it. And so what we go to then is like Wisconsin Rapids, they were operating a 1992 ladder truck that when I arrived there in 93 was still in service. Now they're looking at replacing it, but a few years ago, they did a bunch of suspension work on it. They did a bunch of rebuild work on it to keep that thing in service as long as it can be. And that truck in 92 was $500,000. It's going to cost them probably $2 million to replace it. 
So is there a market for used equipment Absolutely. afterwards? Absolutely. Yeah, and we're part of that market. So our hazmat rig, I wish I could have taken you out to Westside to see that. So we had a 1996 tractor trailer. It was a semi-tractor. We had a four-wheel drive semi-tractor towing a triple axle. Fifth wheel basically was a big race hauler is what it was. It was converted into a hazmat rig. Well, this is in the mid-1990s. Our fleet is saying, hey, we can't fix these axles on this trailer anymore. We really need to look at an alternative. So we called Featherlight and said, all right, we want to talk about building a custom hazmat trailer, and we're going to get another tractor to pull it. And they said, well, it's going to be two years to build it. We're going to tell you it's going to be between five dollars and $700,000. We're not going to give you an exact amount until we've got within that year that we're going to build it. And then you got to buy a tractor on top of that, which is going to be, you know, we're not running, I would call it what, a medium duty tractor, sure. not a full over the road semi. So we were really perplexed to what we were going to do. We only use state contracted monies for that, or at least we try to. And I had about $280,000 sitting in that account. I couldn't afford a $700,000 rig. So we started looking at used and actually one of my lieutenants that leads the hazmat found Madison was selling. 10-year-old Featherlight custom hazmat unit. They're a type two team just like we are with a Freightliner crew cab tractor to pull the thing. And it was totally set up as their hazmat rig. And it was beautiful. And they were asking $120,000. Sweet. Bingo. And long story, but we managed to secure that piece of apparatus and then we have it. And I told the guys here, I'm not going to be here in 10 years, but hey, be on the horn with Madison. And every time they sell their rig, let's buy it. We sold that tractor trailer that we had for $60,000. So for $60,000, we're into the state of the are, this thing's got a periscope on it in the command center in the rear of it that goes up with a camera on it. So the commanders in the scene can be watching whatever they want to. It's got a decent powered Kohler generator up in the gooseneck that runs off the off the Freightliner tanks. It is beautiful for wow. 120 grand. And when you're Madison, you got unlimited funds. <laughs> <laughs> I'll refrain comment. Yeah, I was going to go somewhere with that too. They've got less budgetary issues than I do. And so what you see is smaller departments at buy the stuff up. When we sell our piece of apparatus, it's usually bought by a local volunteer fire department that just can't afford to buy new. And what you see that, and you know what, and those guys, I tell you what, that's where I give it to, the volunteer fire departments. They, they, they fundraise, brought fries or whatever they've got to do because they don't have a lot of money. And then they maintain it themselves a lot of times, or they'll find the funds to get professional level service. So fire apparatus, it takes a long time for them to really die. One of my first official action as fire chief is we had a 1984 100-foot aerial platform that we had out on the west side. It was a reserve ladder. And it was an open cab, meaning that driver and the engineer up front had a cab, but the firefighters in the back were out in the open cab. The thing was failing pump test. It needed new tires. It was probably worth three to $5,000, we felt, maybe. Wow. And it had a, sometimes the ladder operated. And I had said, this can't be safe. And I decommissioned that truck. We sold that truck for about 5000 I saw it recently. I was driving down 39 and just north of Madison. It's sitting on the west side of the road. It's a lime green with a white ladder on it. What we thought somebody would do is buy it for a hunting camp and just a deer stand, drive it as deep in the woods as they could get it, and set up the ladder, <laughs> an idea. and then leave it set. Well, I couldn't convince any of the firefighters to buy it for that. But, so they keep going on, these old apparatus. Well, Bob, you made it clear that the fire trucks really aren't your grandpa's semi-truck. They're completely different, takes different maintenance, different expertise, a lot of differences for sure. As with every All About the Car podcast, we always break away halfway through and visit an interesting Wisconsin destination, and I think we've hit the mark on this one. We were just talking about Madison. We're going to visit the state capital, Wisconsin state capital. And as a matter of fact, some interesting facts about the capital here in beautiful Wisconsin. It was built between the years of 1906 and 1917. It's 11 years. So that's a long build and at a cost of $7.25 million. 
The Madison Capitol is distinguished as being the only state capital ever built on an isthmus. What the heck is an isthmus? What's an isthmus? A stretch of land between two lakes. There we go. Lake Mendona and Lake Monona. There. I don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) That's why you're here on the ride with us. Yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the only granite dome in the United States. I thought that was very interesting. Inside, visitors are treated with unique textures of 43 varieties of stone from around the world, hand-carved furniture, and exquisite glass mosaics. So there's a lot to see there. I embarrassed to say I have not been there. Did you not grow up in the state? Yeah, I did not you? grow up in the state. See, every fourth grader <laughs> has to go to Madison. Yeah. You take a tour. Yep, I wouldn't have been there. And I believe the dome is just shy of our national capital that when it was built, yes. I want to Like three feet? Yes. I mean, we couldn't exceed the national capital's heights, but it's really close. Oh, so they didn't allow us to do that? Correct. Oh, I get you. Okay. Forward is the statue. 284 feet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Forward is up there. Okay. It actually contains 531, 315 square feet of space. So it's a big rig. It's a big building. (laughs) Brian, have you been there? I have. It's gorgeous. Absolutely unbelievable. I'm looking forward to it. I'd like to see it. Of course, it's your second home, right, Bob? Madison? No, <laughs> oh, yeah. That's, where, that's the center of Wisconsin. Uh, I, 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 get the- I get to Madison frequently for different things with Wisconsin State Fire Chiefs. What I recommend is, is you, you don't go there under business. Take your wife to the Old Fashioned, yes. which is a wonderful restaurant. Get the table view where you're looking at the Capitol. Uh, go for a tour over there. Have an Old Fashioned at the Old Fashioned. Order the cheese curds. Call a cardiologist the next day. <laughs> It definitely creates a ambiance of the city in the evening, as you say, and just visually, it's a beautiful building. I think it's something that Wisconsinites celebrate across the board. At a time of a lot of political division, we have a wonderful, beautiful capital that we all need to celebrate and uh, and visit and, and get to know. There's a lot of good local culture around the capital as well. Madison's really well known for that. So there's it definitely, yeah, absolutely. Huge. So you could almost make a weekend of it. Most certainly. Let's get back to our subject, the Wausau Fire Department, sitting here with Bob Bartek in station number one, which is really kind of unique and beautiful. So we're going to get talk a little bit about a day in the life. So daily activities here, you're kind of the nucleus or the center of this thing with some very important people that work around you from what you were telling us earlier. You also had said that I believe you were quoted in media that 2022 was the busiest year in Wausau's fire department history. Why was that? First off, I'll disagree with you. I don't know if I'm the nucleus. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to take that credit. You know, when you guys came in and I introduced you to Mike Becker, one of our battalion chiefs. So the battle rhythm inside of a fire station is really about the operations side of things, meaning that we're meeting the community's calls when they're making those calls. And those battalion chiefs are the ones that lead our three battalions. So what we've got is our people that come in, they shift change at 645 in the morning, and they come in for a 24-hour, what we call a tour of duty. So they're coming in for a 24-hour tour, and what they do, that how their schedule is, and firefighters have a completely different set of labor laws that affect us compared to everyone else. Our work week is a 56-hour work week. In the normal world, it's a 40-hour work week. And so our people work 56-hour a week average when you look at it over the year, take the hours worked and divide that out. So they come in and they'll do a five-day stretch where they'll work 72 hours. So they come in and work 24, have 24 off, work 24, another 24 off, work that last 24 hours. And that's three-day swing. And then they get four days off, 96 hours off. And so that's kind of the battle rhythm. And when they get into that swing, they call, 
They all throw 20 or 25 bucks on the counter the first day of their swing. One of the engineers is going to cook. They start making a plan over those three days about what they're going to eat and things like that. It's the most important thing in the firehouse on a day daily basis is what's lunch going to be. They look to see what they've got. Like tonight, we've got an event going out at Mid-State Technical College. They want an engine out there on display, some firefighters to talk with the community. So we've got that schedule. We've got public education events. We've got all of these maintenance things that we're talking about, these engines that are going in and out of service, repairs that need to be done. Every day, every piece of apparatus is checked in, and we've got that. An iPad that the once they come in at 6.45, at 7 a.m., they do a briefing between all three stations to talk about those duties and training. When they're not working on stuff, they're training. And because of our so many certifications they have, they go out, they check all the daily apparatus in. Now we're ready for the day. Maybe they've already met, been met with a call or two by the time they're that far into it. But as the day builds on, they're answering these calls that coming in. And they're also in between there trying to make sure that they're getting their wellness time in. We've got a one hour and 15 minute fitness day every day. Right below our feet is a really great gym. We've got one at each of our stations, like as good as you're going to find at the Y. We've got an athletic trainer that comes in two days a week to help our people work through injuries because firefighters always seem to be working banged up and it really helps with that. So they've got that as a priority and then training. And so like recently it's been uh, pre-hospital advanced life support training, our PHTLS certification. Our guys have been doing the last few days. Today, I think that they maybe have, maybe hose testing might be completed. They had a little bit of that left over. There's always these things oh my gosh. intertwined I'm tired in between the calls. So when they're not on the calls, they're doing that. Lunch hour comes at 11.30. They get an hour and a half lunch. A lot of guys will kind of eat and then they'll go take a rest. They're working a 24-hour tour here. Lay down, close your eyes at least for a half hour, get a little bit of rest, get back into the afternoon battle rhythm, more training, more equipment, maintenance, whatever it may be. Then about five o'clock in the evening, they wind down and go what we call a stand down time. Hey, read the newspaper, watch the news, have your meal, go to bed whenever you need to. And that because that sleep is interrupted, nobody's sleeping through the night at our stations. They're always getting interrupted for calls. The next morning, they're down early waiting for the reliefs to come in. And when the relief comes in, they can leave as early as the relief comes in. And, and so that's the battle rhythm of the operation side. I'm on the 40 hour side. So I come in every day. I try to be present for a lot of the briefings. I try to get in before seven, sit in on briefing, find out what's going on for the day. And then I'm here until about four o'clock, 4.30 in the afternoon, unless I've got evening meetings and things like that. So the key most leader inside the organization is the fire chief. For me, on my viewpoint, is it's our battalion chiefs. They, they do a wonderful job. They oversee the daily operations of those three stations and all those calls. And when something high acuity comes in, they go out and then they command that. So if it's a multiple vehicle accident with multiple people hurt, they're going to go out and command that. If it's a fire they're going to go command that. If it's a pulseless, non-breathing patient, an EMS call, they go out and help with that. And so they're really key. And uh, we've got some fantastic battalion chiefs here. I can't say enough about what great things about our all of our leaders and all of our people. So you're fortunate enough to be able to work with a very, very dedicated team of people. It takes a team. Yes. And people come to our trade as a career. We don't see a lot of movement come on board. Nah, I didn't like that. I'm leaving. By the time they've arrived here, They've arrived that this is the path that they've basically put their right hand in the air and they've sworn to put the community's needs over their own needs on a daily basis. And when we go out the door, it's always remarkable to me because in any trade, you've got your people that have their strengths and weaknesses in different areas, right? And we celebrate those inside of our organization. I was a hazmat geek and a tech rescue guy. And we had other guys that were great. I always thought I was a talented paramedic, but I knew there was other guys who were more talented as a paramedic around me. When we went out on a call, we would lock arms and strengths in that and our strengths and weaknesses and only put forward our strengths to conquer whatever we had laying ahead of us. And that's what you see with our staff here is that we've got so much talent in here and they keep investing in each other. And we've got a wonderful organizational culture that derives on that. And it's actually 
needed in our trade. They're doing some very difficult stuff. Now, our people see some incredibly difficult things on a daily basis. What you see in the media is maybe 1% of what we're actually wow. doing. And so wonderful people with a team mindset come into work every day and just keep the wheels on the bus down here turning. I was going to say, do you have, talking about what they see and are exposed to and the tours and things like that, do you have mental health services available? That's a great question. and something that is becoming more and more a topic. I will tell you that the stigma of suck it up, buttercup, you know, the tough calls are part of the trade. That's gone long gone, long gone. We talk about mental health on a pretty much a daily basis in here. This last year, we've now contracted with a public health, or excuse me, a public safety specialist who comes in and does an annual, we call it the neck up checkup, and sits down with our people for a one-hour mental health check-in annually. If they want more help, they can continue to get that. We work closely with our EAP, and we're actually right now forming what we're calling a peer support team. We're really trying to gain buy-in in the organization for this peer support team meaning that a lot of times people, they need to talk about the things that they see and do in the field, but they don't want to come and talk to the chief about it. They don't want to go and talk to somebody out where they are. They want to talk to their partner about it. They want to talk to somebody that has been in the trenches and understands this stuff. And so we're developing that. And what you're seeing, unfortunately, in our trade and this last year is suicide in our trade is on the rise. And there's been two Wisconsin firefighter paramedics that have committed suicide so far this year. And there's probably more that need help, right? And so the Wisconsin State Fire Chiefs, the Professional Firefighters of Wisconsin, these organizations are all leaning into that right now to try to find help for our people. So we have our physical fitness, we call our physical wellness, but you know, it's the total wellness for our employee. When we tell our employees that we want them to go home at the end of their 24-hour tour, ready to enjoy their time with their family in a happy state and a good state, and at that thrive on duty and off duty, we are so serious about that. Highest priority for us is the health of our people in our organization. Now, Bob, I couldn't do math quick enough, but on a 24-hour tour in Station 1 here, what is fully staffed? How many bodies? So Station 1, we've got seven here, minimum, and at uh, two outlying stations, four each. And what that looks like at the outlying stations is that there's an engine there with two people assigned to it and an ambulance there with two people assigned to it. And the ambulance crew will then join the engine crew to become the engine crew once they go on a call. Now, that's today. Very near future, as we move into 2024, we've done this huge staffing surge. We've had a lot of those people in training. As we get them out of training on and they get their paramedic certification, we're going to be going to a new staffing model where every one of those engines, those suppression apparatus, are going to have a third person on it. So it'll be three assigned to engine one, engine three, and truck two. We'll all have three. So they'll have a lieutenant officer. They'll have an engineer that's in charge of driving in the apparatus. And they'll have a firefighter paramedic in the back. And then they'll still have an ambulance company that, if they're not on an ambulance call, would join them in the firefighting operations. And so say if you go to a big city, you go to Milwaukee or Madison, they've just got four riding on every engine. And we're getting there. We're getting there. This 12 new positions that the city gave us this community gave this organization last year was really them leaning into that increased call volume that you're talking about. And that call volume, to go back to the origin of that question, where is that coming from? It's coming from largely EMS, where we've got an aging community. We're also finding that people access healthcare more and more through the 911 system and calling an ambulance. Now, am I going to say that they shouldn't be calling an ambulance? No, because in that moment in time, that's an emergency to that person, whoever calls us, right? But we are seeing that people are calling for a lower and lower acuity things. Or maybe you would have just taken care of it at home before, or you would have gone in and sought clinical help or urgent care help. Now you're calling an ambulance for that, or people are choosing to call an ambulance for that. Overall, this is a statistic. I'm going to watch your faces when I say this. Number one reason for dispatch for Wausau Fire, and I don't see this changing in the near future. Number one reason for dispatch, falls. 
injuries from falls and the population that's wow. falling and getting hurt the most is 65 and older. So that would be you. Yeah. I better be careful <laughs> unless I want to meet these fine folks. Keep pedaling on your bike and keep your health up and you're going to be fine. You know, what do we do in response to that? Because our number one goal here is prevention, right? We want to enact a healthy community or be a part of enacting healthy change in our community. So what does that mean? Wausau Fire, our number one reason for dispatch. And so if we want to be doing something on the prevention side, we need to be helping prevent falls. Yes. So we've partnered with the ADRC and we are making referrals for falls training. We're trying to get behind a lot of their efforts. They've got the educational efforts already working with that population. We don't need to reinvent the wheel and go out and talk about things. There is a potential that we may develop a community care paramedic position, which will go out and help with a lot of that. And I'll tell you what, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in that age group that has a propensity for falls, the best advice I can give you is get rid of all the little rugs that you've got around your house. The one in front of the kitchen sink. The trip hazards. The one that's in front of your tub and things like that. Get rid of those trip hazards in your home. Put good grab bars and solid things to grab in and out of the tub, in and off the stool, stuff like that. Just prepare your house. Get a little education in it. Lean into the local ADRC. They've got resources for you. And if you don't know what to do, give them a call. They'll get you plugged into one of their educational programs. So there's my That pitch is great expert advice. To prevent Absolutely. Calls. I want to go back to one question when all the people are in here and they're sleeping. How many firehouses have a fire pole? I like the classic. <laughs> I'm going to die. Up in the middle of the night, I put my boots on. I go down the fire pole. Yes. I wish we had one here. We don't. Okay. Uh, and what you're seeing is they move away from Wisconsin Rapids Station sure, 2. the safest. <laughs> yeah, it has two poles there. They and do. I, yeah, and okay. when I was in Oshkosh, the main station there had a pole, but they were, I think they had capped it off. Firefighters that get woke up out of a deep sleep at 2 a.m. <laughs> and they go to hit that Don't pole. where they're at. <laughs> a lot of times make a flub and then you get somebody hurt. And so staircases, I think that fire poles will always exist. There's Yes, there's new stations being built with them in. Really? Yeah. So you do see that, but we don't have any here. That's a popular question also I ask is, where's the pole? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what you wanted rest. to see here, right, Bill? No, I'm no. just curious. He wanted to go down the pole. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I remember that's as fun. a kid, because the YMCA in Stevens Point took over the original fire station and had the fire pole, and this was the 70s, so you could, could still go down it. Like, as a kid, like... There was no one stopping you. I'm building a new house next year, and I would love to install a fire pole to get to the basement. Just here you go. That makes sense to me. Yeah, yeah. That's going to be a little speed going from the second floor to the basement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's a one-floor home. You know? Okay, okay. It's coming up. It's crawling up the pole, right? Yeah, That's yeah. You know, so fire poles are a lot of the old stations. And so you guys saw the horse-drawn apparatus, and Oshkosh has moved out of the station now, but one of their old stations they had along the river, that was a station that they've got modern mechanized apparatus, and it was just built for the horses. They had a pole that was so tall, and they had a hay mow up there. The pole was right next to the hay mow that they would throw the horses down, the hay for the horses down and stuff. Wow. Yeah. So those things are still around. Bob, I would imagine that you have to watch response time pretty closely. Is that a oh, yeah. metric that you folks run on? Oh, now you're going to get it. This is where the chief kicks in here. You want to talk about, I'm the data nerd. In order to really measure anything that we do, we have to look at all that. And so we watch really closely. So we have benchmark times that we want to make, and not just turnout times, but also I mean, excuse me, response times. But in turnout time, so imagine a call begins to drop here at the station from the time that I have ambulance or a suppression apparatus, a piece of fire truck responding. We've got benchmark times. At EMS, we want to see that rig out the door in 60 seconds or less. Wow. Uh, fire calls, we want to see that rig out there in 80 seconds or less. And now we've had some hurdles to that. And a lot of times it's not the speed of our people, but it's the speed of the technology. And so you guys have been here and heard a couple of calls. You heard that automated voice from the coming from the overhead. We've got six different tones that will strike that indicate EMS call, fire call, a fire alarm, 
water rescue or hazmat. And I think there's another one in there. And so they'll hear that immediately knowing, okay, what type of call they're going. Then that station, the alerting system, there's red lights in many of the speakers. And you'll watch all the guys, as soon as an alarm turns, they're looking at that speaker in that room. If that red light is on and it's an EMS call, that means it's their unit that's going on it. And so what we do at night, after six o'clock at night, we turn dark all of the stations, meaning that only the station that needs to get alerted for that particular call is going to get woke up. Before, they used to listen to all radio traffic of all units all night long, and that does not provide good rest. And you want a well-rested firefighter permit to arrive at your emergency, plus it's about employee health, too. And so during the day, you'll hear all that. So they hear that drop, and then they'll respond to the apparatus appropriately. But what we were finding is, is that that system itself, through dispatch and other things, there was some hurdles to that. So we've really driven that down. And we're really close to our benchmark times right now. Now, benchmark response times, now that gets a little bit more muddied because we talk about, we contract with a bunch of different townships to the north of us. So we've got a different expectation when responding out into the country. We want to be on an EMS call. We want to be on scene in 10 minutes. In the city, we want to be on in three to five. And we're averaging about that. We're averaging about three and a half minutes for an ambulance call inside the city, which is pretty good. We've got some that'll throw that your outliers. I talked about having that neighborhood way out on the west side. You know, even for the west side station, if they're in their station, it's like seven to eight minutes for them to get out there. If they're not in station, we've got to send another station out there to respond to that call. I mean, we can be looking at 17 minutes. So then that throws that off. But that each of these stations are strategically placed within their districts. And so now, as we begin discussing replacing this station that we're sitting in, we've done call response studies. This station, I apologize to the listeners, but I'm turning right now and looking at the intersection of Grand and Thomas. So if we put a pin in the center of the intersection, that's where that fire station belongs. This fire station belongs. And you look where we're at. We're almost on that intersection, right? Well, you can't be in it. And so we're looking at a piece of property just a block south. The further we move away, From that intersection, picture a perfectly configured spider web, perfect. And you've got a fire station in the center of that. And you've got all those arteries where you can run out and the corollaries and things like that. Now, you grab the center of that spider web. And if you've got a station that's not particularly centered in their district and you pull on that, now you're going to see, okay, big part of that web is really close to the center. And then there's a larger part of that web that's really a long ways away from it. And so strategically placed fire stations and apparatus is a direct corollary effect of our response times. That's a geek squad answer. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, I I could talk about that. (laughs) No, that's interesting. And I know it's a metric that you, you do follow. You have to. One of the final questions I have is you talked about the maintenance and the PMs and everything and repairs and upkeep and on the trucks that are done in downtime. But what has to be done when the truck goes out to a call and then comes back? I got to believe you don't just park it and go back to bed. Yeah. There's some things that need to be done to get ready for that next call, which could happen in a minute. Yeah, especially you see that basically any call. And so a lot of it's the equipment that's used on our EMS calls. It's that the one type, one use equipment, whether they started an IV or gave some drugs or put a Band-Aid on, right? So they've got to restock the rig. So that's a part of it. It needs to be clean. It needs to be, you know, in an operating manner and it's got to have whatever. It's not lengthy, but they've got to basically the engineers, they put that truck away. They go through a checklist to make sure that it's ready. And when they come back from a fire, it's the engineer who drives that apparatus. It's not just driving the apparatus. That person, when they get on scene, they're pumping. They're, out, they're in charge of operating the pump. They're also in charge of all the equipment that comes off of that. And so they're keeping a checklist of, okay, all, that axe was removed. That halogen bar was removed. That pike pole was removed. All that stuff has to be cleaned. 
ready for use and put back into that position. Chainsaws and things like that, that's got to hit the workbench. Chainsaws got to get torn apart, got to be cleaned. It's got to be sharpened. It's got to have a new chain on it. It's got to be full of gas and oil. So no questions. This has to be done immediately yep. following the Immediately return. following. It's not like you all, tomorrow the guys will put the chainsaw together. Well, what if you cook a fire right now? And so like chainsaws, I always talk about that because I always love chainsaws. And then I really learned a lot about it through this trade, you know, about how to maintain my own personal chainsaws at home, everything I've learned at work. And so what's interesting as I talked about strengths and weaknesses is we've got people, some of that's the technology too. All right, is the computer ready to go on the next call? Did I complete my written report that I've got to do that? And they got to hit the office and detailed reports have to be filed on all of this stuff, right? So it's not just the physical things that are on the truck, but it's also a lot of that other background things in there, a lot more than people really think. And so sometimes it can be a couple hours to put something back in service. Especially what wow. really gets us is these winter fires. Anything we pull off, you know, just imagine that. Now it's frozen fire hose. It's sure. half water. Got to dry out. It's got to be cleaned. Grid. They need to rewarm. They need to get their turnout gear, their personal protective gear back in organized fashion and go on another call. It's not easy. This career is not for the faint of heart. There's no doubt about it. Thank God people like it. Yes. <laughs> Bob, if you had the opportunity, which I'm giving you right now for parting words, what would you like to tell our listeners? Never pass on an opportunity to tell our community thank you. This Wausau community celebrates this department. We have seen massive support for any of the initiatives that we brought, which most recently was asking for new positions. We had not had a staffing ad since 1970. And when we went to the community and said, we need more people, they said yes, with an exclamation point. And now we're there. And there's going to be future needs too. And I think that we've got a wonderful relationship with our community. And if I had parting words, I'd say just thank you to the Wausau community, anybody that support. And if you're not in Wausau, find a way to celebrate, find a way to support your local fire department. And I tell you what, if you're listening to this and you're living in a rural area and you've ever considered being a volunteer firefighter, I'll tell you that rural areas right now are struggling to get volunteer firefighters and EMTs. And that's something that we need to solve together as communities. It's not going to be solved by dollars. It's going to be solved by people having on their heart to serve each other. And so I guess that's my parting words without a, I don't have anything splashy. <laughs> that sounds great. Yeah. Well, thank you, Bob Bartek, for hosting this episode of our podcast, All About the Car. It's truly an inspiration to see the dedication that you and your department give to the Wausau community every single day, 365 days a year. Thank you for having me on. We hope to have you right along next time on All About the Car. To listen to previous episodes, find additional resources, or to simply send us a message, head to allaboutthecarpodcast.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>